Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. The results of Tuesday's elections are being called a rejection of President Trump. But the president's fiercest advocate says that's all wrong. And the man who helped Texas become one of the most gun-friendly states in America says the church shooting will only make it friendlier. It's Thursday, November 9th. Jeremy Peters, what's going on here? So I had scheduled to have Steve Bannon into the New York Times building for an interview. He canceled on me at the last minute and said, no, we need to do Wednesday morning instead. And as it turned out, that was the much better time because it was the day mm. after the Virginia election. I, I wonder if it was something of uh, a problem of Gillespie himself because he was seen by conservatives as a creature of the swamp, so to speak, 100%. Or, or, or the establishment. But so the big Trump deal on Tuesday was this utter wipeout in Virginia of the Republican candidate for governor, Ed Gillespie. He was absolutely trounced. What, we're in the territory here. We haven't been in Virginia in more than 30 years, the last time a Democrat won a governor's race in Virginia by a margin of eight or better, you got to go to 1985. It was a 10-point margin then. And a lot of people saw that as a repudiation of Trump-style conservative politics because Gillespie made it very clear that if elected, he would do the kinds of things that Donald Trump has done or tried to do. So the race was really seen as a test of whether or not voters in a state that is as politically diverse as Virginia would respond well to that message, and they did not. Jeremy, do you mean that the political diversity in Virginia in some ways represents the political diversity in the U.S. and is therefore representative? Yeah, that's really it, because as the country becomes more and more diverse, it's going to look a lot more like Virginia than Alabama. Hmm. And Trump has shown, and Trump-like candidates have shown, they do very well in states like Alabama, Mississippi. Hmm. But in the swing states, it's going to be much harder. November 8th of 2016 is just one moment in time. You know, we celebrated today in the Trump movement as MAGA Day, right? A, a high holy day. But, you know, a year later, the governor of Virginia lost. Now, it's a blue state and everything like that, but I keep telling people, Every day is going to be a struggle. 
you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, but it's, it's a process. It's and a process. how does Steve Bannon fit into all this? Before he was the chief White House strategist, Bannon was the chief executive of the Trump campaign. And mm-hmm. since he's left the White House, he now sees himself as the person who is safeguarding Trumpism to preserve it in Republican politics and make sure that mm-hmm. Republican candidates across the country are running on platforms that are as close to Donald Trump's agenda as possible. He's going to win re-election with 400 electoral votes, and he'll be he'll be considered in the pantheon of Reagan and Lincoln and others as great presidents. So but I, you have to stick with the program. And it sounds like, ideally, Bannon wants to turn the Republican Party into the Trump Party, right? That's exactly what he would do. And Steve has been trying to do just this every day in Washington and his Capitol Hill townhouse, holding meetings with potential candidates for offices across the country, governorships, House races, Senate races, and it's his hope that each of those people is a keeper of the Trump flame. I believe to win, they have to recreate the coalition that won on November 8th of 2016. But didn't now, Gillespie try to do that? No, it, I, think it was, I think it was grafted on. Who did Gillespie campaign with? He campaigned with George Bush and Marco Rubio and I think Condi Rice. Right? He had George Bush standing next to him. Did he have Donald Trump standing next to him? No, he did not. So how did Steve Bannon explain to you the results in Tuesday's election as anything other than a repudiation of Trump and his movement? Steve believed that the reason Ed Gillespie didn't win had nothing to do with voters disliking Donald Trump. It had everything to do with Ed Gillespie convincing voters that he wasn't enough like Donald Hmm. Trump. Hey, Gillespie's not a guy that particularly, you know, excites me. He's an establishment guy. He's kind of a swamp creature. You know, he's a lobbyist. Uh, He's got a lot of negatives to him. Bannon is basically saying that the narrative out there about Tuesday's election has it all wrong, right? It's not that voters are rejecting Trump. In fact, he seems to be suggesting that the real problem is that the candidates are not fully embracing Trump sufficiently. And ones that are seen as inauthentic or insincerely embracing Trump's ideas will fail. And that's what he believed happened with Ed Gillespie. It wasn't about Trump. It was about Ed Gillespie. I do believe that that Gillespie was a little half-hearted. It wasn't embracing the core parts of the Trump agenda and driving it and making it every day. The Trump agenda will win. So Bannon is saying that Tuesday night should not be seen as concerning in what it says about the president and his movement, but instead that the president and this movement need to find the right candidates. That's what Steve wants us to believe. But I myself have a hard time believing that he wasn't a little bit alarmed by what happened on Tuesday night in Virginia because the Republican candidate there wrapped himself in two cultural issues that Trump voters really responded well to, that Trump himself pushed in immigration and this question of what to do with Confederate symbols in the South. So I wonder if the concern that you suspect Bannon might have is that voters, at least in Virginia— seem to have rejected the Trump platform, too, not just the candidate. 
certainly Virginia shows us that the Trump ideas are not universally popular and that they can be an anchor around the neck of Republican candidates who are attacked as being too close to Donald Trump. That's the question that strategists like Steve Bannon are going to have to grapple with as they look at races in 2018 in states where Donald Trump is not very popular. And Virginia was one of those places. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Tomorrow on The Daily, Jeremy's full interview with Steve Bannon. Do you think Mitch McConnell will be majority leader at this time next year? I absolutely do not think he will be majority leader. I Is that not. your personal mission to make that not happen? Uh, it's not my personal mission, but I, I have a, an objective that Mitch McConnell would not be majority leader, and I believe will be done uh, before this time next year. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Facebook. It's been 25 years since lawmakers passed comprehensive internet regulations. But the internet has changed a lot since then. And it's time for an update. That's why Facebook supports updated internet regulations to set clear guidelines for addressing today's toughest challenges, like protecting privacy, fighting misinformation, reforming Section 230, and more. See their progress on key issues and what's next at about.fb.com regulations. In the days since the shooting at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, there has been little talk of gun control in Texas. Instead, after the shooter was interrupted by a neighbor with a rifle, there's been talk of more people arming themselves. It's not the first time that a mass shooting in Texas has strengthened the state's relationship to guns. Are you wearing a gun right now as we speak? Yeah, I always carry. I have a 9mm Ruger in a, inside the waistband holster in the small of my back. I, it's always with me. Hmm. Do I need that? Your next question. No, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever need it. <laughs> but you know what? I don't think I need my smoke detector. I don't think I'll ever use my smoke detector in my house either. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and the reason I carry all the time is that if you make a decision to carry, you need to do that all the time. And there's two reasons. One reason is there is no safe space anymore, no, no safe place in America. And the other reason I carry all the time is for those people who decide, you know, well, I'll carry today and I won't carry tomorrow. I'll carry here and I don't carry there. That is a way to lose your firearm. Do you carry a billfold? Do I carry a wallet? Uh, yes, very, very, okay. very thin one. And when you walk, when you, when you leave in the morning and you walk out of the house, if it's not in your pocket, do you quickly recognize something feels different? Totally. Okay. That's why I carry. You put it on and you leave it on. And that makes you notice when it's not there. And that's very important. It's a security measure for a weapon that in the wrong hands could be could be problematic. It's interesting. My wallet is actually on the table now in our studio because I it makes me uncomfortable when I'm sitting for an interview. So I'm imagining you sitting. How do you sit with a, a gun on you at all times? Well, just kind of like you do. (laughs) It doesn't bother me. Jerry Patterson was in the Texas legislature for six years. During that time, as a freshman senator in 1993, he wrote the legislation that allowed Texans to carry a concealed weapon. 
Can you tell me what your law actually does? What does it say and what does it do? Well, the law allowed law-abiding citizens to carry a handgun on their persons for whatever reason and wherever they wished to go. There were prohibited locations, but it allowed people to lawfully do what they had been doing unlawfully for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Were were your constituents asking for you to to write this law? Was it in response to anything in particular? You know, the Luby's Cafeteria Massacre. In central Texas, scenes from a massacre. When a guy drove his truck through the window of a Luby's Cafeteria and got out and started just shooting people. It was just afternoon. The cafeteria was jammed when the killer rammed his truck through a window. Witnesses say he fired, reloaded, and fired again. He was pretty calm about it. He know he wasn't like cussing or saying mother this or that. You know, he just just opened fire. At least 23 killed, perhaps as many as 20 others in hospitals. It appears to be the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. There was a young lady chiropractor named Susanna Hupp who was there eating lunch with her parents. And when she started to get out of her car, she says uh, she took her gun out of her purse and left it in her car because she was a chiropractor, didn't want to lose her license if she was, if she was caught mm. with a handgun that she you know, couldn't lawfully carry. When I finally realized what was occurring, I thought, I got him. And I reached for my purse. He was maybe 12 feet away. And then as she sat there uh, watching this guy calmly walk around and shoot victims cowering on the floor, she said... But then I realized that a couple of months earlier I had made the stupidest decision of my life. I took my gun out of my purse and left it in my car. Because as you well know, in the state of Texas, it's sometimes a felony offense to carry a gun in your purse. You know, is it possible my gun could have jammed? Sure. Is it possible I could have missed? Sure. But I can tell you I've hit much smaller targets at much greater distances. I could have killed him. I could have stopped it. But my government took away my right to save my parents' life. I'm mad at my legislators for legislating me out of the right to protect myself and my family. I would much rather be sitting in jail with a felony offense on my head and have my parents alive. Pretty graphic pretty compelling testimony. Uh, People were sick of it. People were sick of the government saying, well, we know what's best for you. You're not competent enough. You know, only police should have guns. And, you know, and and that's what that law said, uh, even though most Texans didn't agree with it. I mean, the Texans frequently just ignored the law. They carried anyway, generally in their truck or their car. Mm -hmm. They seldom carried on their person unlawfully. But yes, the public wanted that bill to pass, and it did. So the outcome of that shooting was that Texans wanted more access to guns. How many guns do you own now? Uh, I would probably estimate I have about 75. Hmm. Inevitably, someone will ask this question. Why do you need 75 guns? I don't. <laughs> you know, I, I tell people I, I could get by on about 25 Um you know, if you uh, if you hunt all game that's available in Texas, well, you need if you're going to hunt quail, you need a twenty or twenty eight gauge because anything mm-hmm. bigger will tear up the bird too much. If you're hunting feral hogs at the feeder, then an AR is a really good weapon because you've got five or six or seven or eight pigs around the feeder, and you want to have a, a a quick responding semi automatic weapon to get as many as you can. And then, of course, you've got the gun that your daughter, the 410 shotgun, that your daughter shot five sporting clays in a row with. And I'm certainly not going to get rid of that, you know. (laughs) So, yeah. And then if you are into the right to carry, uh, 
you need at least two because you need a very small one uh, and then you need something a little larger. So, so I could get by with 25. When, when you take out the historical aspect of my firearms, you can probably get by, well, maybe 20. Jerry, you said that there's no safe space in America, and that's why you always make sure you have your gun the way I might have my wallet. When did you start feeling that way, that there was no safe space left? You know, basically, after the beginning of the mass shootings in the last several, you know, Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, uh, South Carolina, Dillon Roof. I mean, I can go through the names, Aurora, Colorado Theater, uh, and then Las Vegas, and and, and now Sutherland Springs. Yeah, so you would conclude that there are no safe spaces. You're at a country and western concert in Las Vegas. You're in church mm-hmm. in a small town in Texas. So yeah, I think it's a pretty solid conclusion. There are no safe places in America anymore. And frankly, one of the least safe places is a gun-free zone. It's a target-rich environment where the shooter believes, correctly or incorrectly, that no one there is armed. Does a mass shooting make you at all question the number of guns in your own life? No, it absolutely doesn't. I'll give, I'll give you know, Sandy Hook was a gut punch to me. And it wasn't because I've got 75 guns. It would have been a gut punch if I had two or 200. I stopped and thought, I said, are my opinions well-founded? Am I right? And yes, I am. You know, we had a nut job there. His mother bought the gun lawfully, not at a gun show. You know, a waiting period would have made no difference. Registration would have made no difference. All these window dressing proposed laws don't make us safer. You could make us safer if you confiscated every semi-automatic firearm in the United States. Is that possible? No. We have talked on this show about the familiar kind of gun that's used again and again in these kinds of shootings. Yeah, yeah. And I think you may possess one of those guns. You mentioned you own an, an AR. Actually, I have three. I just figured it out. I got two ARs that mm-hmm. shoot the small bullet, the 223, and I've got one that shoots a 308. Could you ever support a law or legislation that would take those guns off of the streets and the shelves? And No. And why not? It wouldn't make us safer, and it's not doable. Five million ARs, and how are you going to get them? You're going to confiscate them. It ain't happening. So we shouldn't get pissed at each other talking about it. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen. You keep talking about how there are no longer safe spaces. And we're, we're now hearing from people in Texas, families in the Sutherland Springs Church or who know people or who are families with those who died who say that they want to start carrying their guns to church. Not that they... They want to do that, but that they don't feel safe even in a sanctuary. Do you think that increasing access to guns is the only way for people to feel safe now? Uh, I think it's probably the best way in the short term. Hopefully, at some point in the future, there will be, there never will be and never has been a safe place. I'll give you an example. I've said on multiple occasions that had I been in the theater in Aurora, Colorado, fewer people would have died. And of course, the response is, you couldn't have stopped that guy. He had body armor. He had lots of ammo. And your little nine millimeter in your waistband wouldn't have done a damn thing. Mm. Well, here's what's wrong with that response. Common denominator in all of these mass shootings is a shooter in complete, absolute, total control, calmly, 
walking around in Aurora and in, in, in Sutherland Springs, shooting people in the back of the head as they cowered behind their seats. The first time you change that comfort zone of that killer, the first time you return fire, the dynamic changes. Now there are downsides to that. You know, you might get killed as the Good Samaritan. You might shoot somebody else that's innocent. The cops may come in and shoot you. This is not a perfect situation. This is a last ditch maneuver. And if you're in Aurora, Colorado, or you're in Sutherland Springs, Texas, and this is going on, to take away your ability to return fire is criminal, criminal for my government to say, I can't defend myself. So you now anticipate a mass shooting might occur and that you might be there with a gun. I don't anticipate that. I hope and pray that mm -hmm. never happens, but I choose not to be a cowering target mm -hmm. should that occur. Jerry, thank you. I really appreciate you spending some time with us and, uh, and talking through all this. Okay, well, I appreciate your interest. On Wednesday, law enforcement officials announced that a video recording of Sunday's services at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs had captured the mass shooting that killed 26 of its congregants. The video makes clear that the shooter methodically set out to shoot everyone inside, and nearly did. Here's what else you need to know today. The Times reports that a proposal to ban the sale of bump stocks, the device used to kill 59 people in America's last mass shooting, has stalled in Congress. In the days after that shooting last month in Las Vegas, a bipartisan group of lawmakers, and even the NRA, suggested they were prepared to restrict the device, which allows semi-automatic weapons to fire at the rate of automatic guns. Some have said we shouldn't do this now. We should wait. Now is not the time. Ladies and gentlemen, when is the time going to be there? But in the weeks since, both Republicans and the NRA have turned the conversation away from any pending legislation. This is not a new phenomenon. Uh, when you have a horrific situation take place and politicians' first reaction is, we have to do something. NRA executive Chris Cox explained why nothing happened. That's not a, a bad reaction necessarily, but it's a really bad way to legislate. When you don't know the basic facts and you don't understand the basics of firearms and you want to go in and legislate, which is why we said, look, we need to stop having so many conversations about devices and hardware and have a conversation about behavior. On Wednesday, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein once again introduced a bill that would ban bump stocks, along with a wider ban on assault weapons. After every mass shooting, the senator said, the American people will know that a tool to reduce these massacres is sitting in the Senate, ready for debate and a vote. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow.
With no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, and an app that lets you bank anytime, anywhere, choosing Capital One is like the easiest decision in the history of decisions. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC.